Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Resilient Health Radio. I'm your host, Dr. Darren Ingalls, and joining me on the podcast today is Dr. Sam Shea. Dr. Sam is a chiropractic physician and expert in genetics. So today we're going to talk about genetics specifically as it relates to Lyme disease. And he and I were talking before we started recording that he was shocked that we haven't had this discussion before. And I started to think about it. I'm like, boy, you're right. This is kind of strange that we haven't had the conversation. So I'm really happy to be talking with you today about this. So Dr. Sam, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Dr. Ingalls. I, uh, yeah, I was kind of like wall-eyed when you said you hadn't really had a discussion <laughs> on genetics and and Lyme, and 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 the reason the 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 reason I'm very inspired to share this with you is that I I have Lyme, and I only found out, and, and even though I've been in natural health for over 25 years, like my, I didn't find out I had Lyme until last year, and then when I put the pieces together, it made total sense why I've been so tired, my whole life, and why I've had really weird presentations that that I was gaslit when I was just, just to kind of back up a bit, like I, how I got Lyme very straightforward. I went to summer camp in Northeast for nine summers in a camp where there was no electricity except in the dining hall. And in like the, 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 the place where they showed movies once a week, but everything else was like in the woods in Maine, you know, wooden cabins, no electricity. Uh, so, and I've been, um, since I was six years old, my my very first memories, I started summer camp at age six, uh, my very first memories were being exhausted. Now, part of it was I my parents had a nuclear divorce when I was six years old, and all me and my three sisters were caught in the blast radius. And my parents did the worst things like weaponizing the children against each other, you know, having one having using me as a go-between, and I'm like a kid. And it was just, it was just awful. And they didn't handle the divorce well. And uh, I was also a lot of uh, violence and bullying at school. And I was fed a terrible diet of like high gluten bagels and SpaghettiOs. And I can't, I was put on a low fat diet when I was six because my cholesterol was too high when I was age seven, evidently, Mm -hmm. as a thing is happens in the eighties that a seven year old's cholesterol can be too high, I guess. Um, (laughs) Anyway, so, uh, and, and I actually have that and it was like 212 you know, or something like 220 something. Anyway, the, so I had a lot of reasons to blame my fatigue on something non-organic, like being crippled with insomnia from the emotional, uh, emotional stress at home and the physical violence at school and being gaslit on all ends. And, uh, my parents were not adults to put it mildly. So my, and this doesn't mean that they're not smart, intelligent people. They were both medical doctors and both actually both psychiatrists. And so there's plenty of humor layered into that. And it's also almost, I'm a, I'm a stand-up comic on top of being a clinician. Uh, yes. And I, and people ask me, how'd you get into comedy? I say the usual way through tragedy. So, <laughs> so uh, my so so I I had I didn't have a concept that all my fatigue and terrible health was could could be related to Lyme because I had all these other reasons from from you know all those other reasons I mentioned uh, and digest and I was addicted to video games I was addicted to sugar I was addicted to coffee all all sorts of things from a very very young age and then I finally tested for Lyme and I'm like oh going to summer camp at the same time didn't help because it's almost certainly I got, I don't remember. I know I had bites on me, but no one ever taught a six-year-old what a bullseye rash was, assuming I would even have gotten one because there's not all, as you know, on all tech bikes, leave right. a bullseye wherever they bite. But but the, that that's why I didn't realize it, even though I've been in the profession for so long. Uh, and um, so my that that that's my relationship with Lyme and uh the the connection to genetics is that uh, I didn't start really digging into genetics until 2016 so I'm going into my 8th year of really diving super deep into genetics and when I ran my genetics report 
And it's this very specific type of report where I'm not figuring out what percentage Irish I am or whatever. It's it's looking at what are the most important genes as they relate to health as the upstream drivers of all other diseases underneath them. So I'm not checking the genes for stroke, the genes for heart disease, the genes for Alzheimer's, the genes for diabetes, the genes for anything else. I'm looking at what are the genes that drive all seven drivers of all diseases, which number one, inflammation, number two, free radical damage, scavenging in the mitochondria. Whoa, I'm getting balloon things on my Zoom now. Okay, so for those of you who aren't, aren't, aren't watching, Zoom did this update where now if you do any hand gesture for any durable period of time, they start to auto-populate with all these really strange gestures. And it is so distracting and bizarre, and I don't know shut it off. Okay, anyway, technical difficulties aside. Um, so, so inflammation, free radical damage, scavenging in the mitochondria, where 95% of all the free radicals are generated. Uh, liver detoxification, phase one, phase two, vitamin D receptors methylation and it's not just mthfr spoiler there's like a dozen and a half major genes for methylation uh the cardiovascular circulation genes and then fat energy metabolism and so the the intention is that the genes you want to pick for health are one related to health two related to the seven one of seven drivers three related to the uh what, are the, what which genes of those are upstream that control the other genes underneath it. So there's hundreds of genes that are related directly or indirectly to inflammation, but I only want to look at the top like 15 or so that control everything else underneath it. And then more, most importantly, perhaps, which of those genes actually have peer-reviewed research done on humans, not wombats or nematodes, that show that lifestyle interventions alone, alone, change the epigenetic expression to a better result. So if someone has you know, what we call like the two bad copies of a gene, one from mom, one from dad, we call that a red dot. If it's one good copy, one bad copy, doesn't matter from which, we call it a yellow dot. And if they have two good copies, called a green dot. Now, your genes will never change from green dot to yellow or green uh, or, or red to green or yellow to, to green. Right. You can change the behavior so that the red dots can behave more green-like. And the yellow can behave more green-like. And also, if you screw up your lifestyle, your green can careen backwards into acting red-like or yellow-like. So that's what they mean by changing your genes. Your genes do not change. That's that's not a thing unless you're dumb enough to inject CRISPR into your bicep. That's actually happened. Go online. It's freakish and kind of sad and hilarious and also still sad to, <laughs> to view these people who do that. Yeah. But your genes do not change. The expression changes. So the the good news is that when I got my gene results back, and uh, I test for about a hundred or so genes, not hundreds and hundreds of thousands. When I got my gene results back, I cried for an hour because I finally explained why I was so sick, because and everyone else around me wasn't because I up until uh, a, a two summers ago, I in my entire practice of doing hundreds and hundreds of these tests. In my practice, I've had the worst genes in terms of red and yellow dots of anybody. I got dethroned. So now I'm a silver medalist in the crappy gene Olympics. <laughs> uh, I got dethroned uh, about two summers ago. And I was to have mixed feelings about <laughs> um, and 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 I cried initially, but then I I caught myself. Oh, I cried because like I finally have answers of why I was so I was so unwell, but also I was like, oh. I now can do something. And so, for example, I had chronic joint pain like an 80-year-old man. And I was in my 30s at the time when I got my results. I had aching pain in my joints. And from my genetic results, I realized I'm a hyper-inflamer. And I'm not talking about being up on stage and annoying people on, from comedy. I'm talking like internally. I hyper-inflame and my inflammation just rails right into my joints. And once I changed my lifestyle according to my genetics, my joint pain went away. Now, this was what was different was I had different lifestyle recommendations to implement based on the research on these particular gene clusters. But also, I had a different concept of dosing of nutrients from nutritional dosing to what's called nutrigenomic dosing. Have you have you heard of this term before, nutrigenomic yes. dosing? Yeah. So, um, so for people listening, nutrigenomic, it was new to me when I heard it. And I was like, oh, I didn't realize this is a thing. Uh, so nutrigenomic 
means I don't give a gram of fish oil like I took for two decades or whatever, decade and a half. I take my gram of fish oil and it's helping me with inflammation. Eh, kind of, sort of. It's like throwing widgets into the machinery. But if you take way more, then it's not that you're throwing fish oil as widgets into the machinery. You actually change the machinery. That the genes now transcribe way more of the anti-inflammatory stuff as opposed to simply using the fish oil as widgets in the existing machinery. I didn't even have a concept of that until I read, until I studied genetics. And for me, because I'm such a hyper-inflamer, I needed way more, like my, my, my personal maintenance level of fish oil, I'm not saying people should do this, and this is not a prescription. My personal level of maintenance for fish oil is like four to six grams a day. It's not two, it's not one, it's like four to six because I'm so pro-inflammatory. And, uh, and that's just one example. And the connection then, so I, I so dealt with the joint pain genetically, and then fast forward to Lyme last year, now I'm yoking the two. Why is it that there are some people that have, you know this better than anyone I know, that they have Lyme titers in their blood, the antibodies, whatever it is. Some people are reacting to their Lyme, some people less so or not at all. And there's many, many variables that go into that, one of which I believe is genetic vulnerability. And so I'm trying to thread the needle between how can someone look at their genetics, identify at-risk genes, and then shore up those at-risk genes through nutrigenomic and other lifestyle interventions based on the research so that they're not so vulnerable anymore to Lyme or anything else. And that's that's what I want to share today with some some level of detail, like with with citations of papers talking about specific genes. But just the big picture, there are certain gene sets that I've been able to find with the help of of a really wonderful colleague named Dr. Fortuno, who's helped me scavenge up some of these research these these obscure research articles uh, to to find, to inform people that there are genetic vulnerabilities that we can address that can help mitigate some of the effects of Lyme. And that's, that's my working theory. I have no guarantees, but that, that's my theory connecting genes to Lyme and looking at, and looking at my own experience of, you know, changing my own lifestyle and having the joint pain go away. Maybe that was also Lyme involved. I didn't know because that was back in like 2017, 16, 17, when I, I got when I got the reports and started to then to really implement everything. I didn't know I had Lyme at the time. So I can't tell you if the Lyme was involved with my joint pain or not, but it's very likely. Yeah. So can you, can you walk us through some of those? I know that you you've got a very specific set of genes that you've identified. Can you walk us through what are some of those? Uh, specific genes that we should be thinking about, looking at. And I think you put together a nice little presentation on sure, this. I'll, I'll share my screen. And for people just listening, um, you, I'll talk about it in a way that you can still just listen. But if people who are visual, there's a visual component. And I'm going to make these slides available if people want them to dig into the citations and so on. So the and, and for people who are who are new to this universe, there's going to be some level of jargon I'm go that's going to be spoken. So just kind of let it let it wash over you like music. And it's it's up to people like me and Dr. Ingalls to be on a first name basis with these Scrabble winning polysyllabic jargon. So <laughs> don't just let it wash over you like music and and just enjoy enjoy the symphony here of of nerditude. Um, and we're both wearing glasses, nerd twerk. There we go. There. Uh, thank you. I feel seen. All right. So, uh, Lyme, so basically what we're looking at is, is a couple major genes. So we're looking at the genes as it relates to oxidative stress. So oxidative stress is looking at genes related to free radicals. So for free radicals, the best way to understand a free radical is that your mitochondria are electricity factory. And the mitochondria, 10% of your body weight is mitochondria and they make electricity. Now to understand how important this is, if you were in, like in New York or LA and you lost power, it would be three days before it turned full Mad Max. Just it'd be three days. And, and you need electricity to run everything. 
And if you don't run electricity well through a city, then people are left burning garbage in the street for a little bit of light and a little bit of heat and a lot of pollution. And that is a perfect analogy that if the mitochondria factories break down, then you are left with burning garbage in the streets, in the cytoplasm in this case, in the cell, where you're taking one molecule of fuel like glucose and if you can throw it into the factory, you get 36 units of energy in, in almost all cells except the liver, you get 38. You get 36 units of energy and no smoke, no lactic acid. But if the factory is broken, then you burn it in the streets and you get two units of energy and two units of smoke called lactic acid. So in the factory, when you burn fuel combined with oxygen to get the 36 units of energy, you create sparks. And these sparks fly everywhere and can light stuff on fire. And that's really bad. And so what you need are janitors to run around and put out the sparks so stuff doesn't light on fire and burn the whole thing down. Now, the head janitor is named MN Sod, who I call Mr. Sod. MN technically stands for manganese, but I'm going to call him Mr. Sod because it's funnier. So Mr. Sod is the head janitor. Mr. Sod runs around. And he collects all these superoxide radicals. He collects all this, these, these sparks and he smushes them together. He brushes them all together into one pile and they combine to form hydrogen peroxide. And the two subjanitors, catalase and glutathione peroxidase. No, I haven't figured out cute names for them yet, but I'm open to suggestions. Uh, Dr. Ingalls, I'm looking at you. <laughs> and, and these two subjanitors then convert that pile of hydrogen peroxide into oxygen and water, which is pretty cool that your body takes fire and turns it into water and oxygen. That's pretty amazing. And this is, for those of you who are curious, it's like, well, do we need to drink water to make, actually you make metabolic water. Like your body actually regenerates things and turns it into water. But that's another side, that's a side point. But basically, free rat, you, your, your factories make sparks from making electricity efficiently so the city doesn't turn into Mad Max. But there's a, there's a risk that your sparks fly everywhere and you need these janitors to run around and put them out. Where genetics comes in is that if your Mr. Sod or his two subjanitors are slow, and you just you just don't you, they're they're just they're tired they're overworked whatever it is like they're just they're not they're 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 not up to speed, so they're really slow to catch the sparks and turn hydrogen peroxide into oxygen water. So you get this kind of ambient level damage going on in the mitochondria, which affects your ability to generate electricity, which then affects literally everything, your immune system, repair, uh, every process you can imagine requires the electricity generated. So when I look back at um, Lyme, inflammation, oxidative stress, and mitochondrial dysfunction, that is literally the name of the title in this paper, that the superoxide levels, that's the that's the the superoxide radicals, that's the sparks. The sparks were way higher in Lyme patients than in non-Lyme patients. And that's so that's the connection to the these three genes to Lyme. And my theory, uh, or rather excuse me, hypothesis, my hypothesis is that people who have uh, red or yellow dots, like I do, I have a I have a red dot in MN side, and a red dot in GP and glutathione peroxidase. We are way more vulnerable to the damage of Lyme because our janitors aren't fast enough to put out the free radicals. So that that's gene set number one. I want to just pause there and and ask and if you have any questions or comments on that. Well, you know, it makes so much sense. I think, you know, for decades now, we've been trying to understand what is it about each individual with Lyme that has such a different experience with how it presents. Why do some people get more neurological symptoms? Some people get more arthritic symptoms. Some people get hardly any symptoms. So it, it makes so much sense that your epigenetic expression is really driving the symptom picture. And in that, you know, I think as we continue to go through this conversation, it'll give us more clues on maybe what we should be doing and sometimes really what we shouldn't be doing. But I, I, I like your analogy of burning garbage in the street. I think that's a, a perfect uh, understanding of how things shift in our body 
when things aren't working the way they're supposed to. And, you know, you talk about taking, you know, based on your, you know, genetic profile, having to need more fish oil to help quelch that inflammation. I mean, you know, I'm living, someone living, you know, post Lyme, but living with MS and I'm the same way. It's like, I got to take those higher doses of fish oil to really keep the inflammation under control. So again, it's, we're not recommending this for you, but based on your, your individual need, sometimes, you know, we do need to use these nutrients or herbs in higher amounts and sometimes lesser amounts based on, you know, how we respond. Absolutely. And and with that, it's it's there there's a the 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 mitochondria is absolutely crucial as a pivot point for any any chronic infection, any chronic autoimmune issue, right. yeah. whatever it might be. And then and but wait, there's more. And we could talk about histamine and mast cell activation and cytokine release. So this is a paper uh where it's a quote, mast cells stimulated with uh, B. burgdorferi spirochetes for four hours showed a tenfold increase in TNF-alpha mRNA over background compared to 16-fold increase observed in the mast cell. Okay, basically saying that the jargon here is that people who have uh, Borrelia have more mast cell stimulation. And so to, th- to me then it's like, okay, that's useful in the lab, but there's people who have hyperreactivity to histamine release. The people are genetically more vulnerable to increasing histamine. Now, I want to, when when I talk about genetics, I want to be sure not to vilify histamine or inflammation. I want to contextualize it. So I'm going to take a slight dogleg into the evolutionary biology of histamine and inflammation. So the my opinion is that the point of histamine is that it is the emergency flood switch to deal with venom. What do I mean by that? Is that when a bee stings your arm, the bee did not inject a cup of water into your arm and your arm swelled up, but that's not a thing. What happened is the bee injected venom and then the body says, oh look, venom, that's bad. We need to dilute it as quickly as possible. Otherwise the venom will corrode and erode blood vessels, arteries, nerves, muscle, possibly even bone if it's bad enough. And or spider bite or scorpion bite or centipede or or even plants with their stingers or or flies or whatever it is. So to me, my theory is that, sorry about this, is that histamine is the body's um, genetic emergency switch for dealing with venom to flood the area with water, to dilute the toxin, to buy your liver and kidneys time to filter it out so it doesn't destroy the tissue. Now, the trade-off is if you have a hyper-responsive histamine, then your arm will swell up so much it will choke off the very nerves, arteries, joint function, whatever that was trying to, that the flooding was trying to protect from the venom. So you create this other problem. So, uh, so there's nature evolution. Evolution does not give a hoot about you or me as an individual. It only cares about the lineage. Will the lineage survive? And so it creates these little gambles of you're more histamine sensitive, you're less histamine sensitive, you're somewhere in the middle. And just over time, due to sexual selection and se- and and like sexual reproduction, you will combine and recombine all these different averages, and they will. It just over time, the average with the lineage will survive on average. Same thing with inflammation, that inflammation itself is not bad. It's just if it goes on for too long or too strong. So I'm a massive overinflamer genetically. And why would I have a genetic advantage? Like, because some people say, why would nature be so stupid as to make someone so hyperinflammatory? It's like, well, I don't think nature is stupid. I think we're just in the wrong. We're in the mismatch. There's literally a book called Mismatch uh, that my genes are mismatched for the current day and age. So if I'm a hunter-gatherer and I'm out there hunting an animal 10 times my body weight with horns, hoofs, teeth, claws, and I'm trying to hunt that animal with a tiny stick, there's a very good chance me or one of my hunting parties is going to get bitten, mauled, gored, trampled, clawed, whatever. Now, what is a bite wound on the arm? A bite wound is a rendering a damage, tissue damage plus the injection of infections, microbes into the flesh. So what does inflammation do? Inflammation rushes to the area with red blood cells to heal the area and white blood cells to kill the 
uh, risk of infection. So it's trying to create a healing environment to repair damage and prevent systemic inf infections from going systemic. So if I am more pro-inflammatory genetically, I will likely, and if my, and my other hunting party member has gets the exact same bite wound, but is less inflammatory prone, I will likely survive, more likely survive short term than my less inflammatory prone hunting party member at the trade-off for I will likely die earlier from uh, and as the years go on from inflammatory related diseases, but my hunting party member won't. And so he'll have a, a survivability on the long, long tail. I'll have a better survivability on the short tail. So again, that's that's about all things trade-offs with evolutionary biology. So I'm I'm and once I realize that, I stop and this is this is where it gets practical as opposed to like, oh, that's really interesting theoreticals. This is where it gets practical. I forgave my body. I forgave my body when I saw my genetics. It's like, oh, my body is not uniquely uh, this this othering thing that's trying to sabotage me and ruin my life. My body was genetically designed to be in a different environment than what I am. That's it. So I forgave my body when I saw my genetics. And this, I'm the same person when I was much younger. I would wake up from insomnia, literally screaming at my body, why won't you let me sleep? Like I would talk to my body like it was an alien other that was trying to hurt me. And and this is it was very is a very intense set of years with that. But I finally forgave my body when I saw my genetics. I know that may sound odd to some listeners, but I promise you, it was cathartic. And yeah, I, I don't I don't think that's odd at all, Sam. I think you know we often feel betrayed by our body yes. when we're not feeling well. I, I've had more conversations with my body than I probably care to count. You know, with regards to MS, and it's like you know why me? Why this? And again, your body is designed to do exactly what it was built to do. But like I said, sometimes given the environment, given other circumstances, it behaves in a way that's often protective, but in that protective mechanism can create inflammation, can create damage for whatever reason. And you know, as you're talking about Lyme and, you know, histamine and mast cell activation, you know, we think about so many people that struggle with brain fog, headaches, migraines, neuropathy. You know, we've got compelling evidence that a lot of this is it's not the organism literally eating your brain. I mean, that doesn't really happen with Lyme. It's that mast cell activation that affects the brain, that affects the nervous system, that creates this, you know, litany of symptoms. So again, we can find ways to downregulate that inflammatory response. You know, we start to get our brain and our nervous system back. Absolutely. And the, the knowing someone's, knowing your genetics for uh, can inform if one someone is more prone towards one type of response versus another and and like, like we talked about histamine now talk about inflammation specifically like tnf alpha interleukin 6 like and and these are the two most popular inter, uh, these are two most popular inflammatory genes i think out there um I would – it's TNF-alpha interleukin-6. And like here's here's another paper saying like a large number of genes were exclusively more intensely upregulated by live, you know, Borrelia burgdorferi uh, and TNF-alpha interleukin-6. And just to show people like what a real inflammatory gene panel looks like, uh, the real – a real panel – it's like I run on 15 major genes. And so this is – Looking at three interleukin ones, interleukin six, interleukin eight, interleukin eighteen, TNF alpha, three CRP genes, two Cox genes, and then the interleukin tens. I call the interleukin tens. They're the uh, firefighters. So if someone has a red dot or a yellow dot in the interleukin tens, these are the ones the inflammatory genes actually put out inflammation. It's like, do you have a fire truck or do you have a squirt gun to put out a raging inferno? So to me, it's like. The TNF-alpha interleukin-6 are very, very important, but they have to be contextualized because interleukin-10s, in my opinion, are actually more important because you, if, you, if you have fire, but if you have enough water to put it out, you can at least handle it. But if you only have a squirt guns and even you have a mild fire going, you're going to create burns no matter what. Um, and there's other patterns that we can talk about another point of other things like, like, like the CRP genes, if they're 
yellow if they're yellow or red and then someone's got real problems with estrogen detox and they get inflamed this leads to the inflammatory wind up where uh, people get inflamed and men can develop gynecomastia or man boobs or women's cycles can get screwed up because their liver the liver will choose between okay if the kitchen the choice between taking out the garbage or trying to deal with the kitchen being on fire what's more important it's it's the kitchen on fire so your the your detox of hormones will be absolutely shoved back in the priority uh, uh line in order to deal with inflammation people have problems in their inflammatory genes particularly in their liver then that risk of inflammatory uh inflammatory shunting of hormone detox off to the side is way higher i, I presented at a couple conferences on exercise induced obesity where people were so over over inflaming from over exercises but they had this combination of their liver having uh problems with inflammation and the problems getting rid of estrogen that the inflammation from over exercise triggered this inflammatory response that then screwed up their hormones and they started repositioning fat everywhere uh, or their hormone cycles went on in the case of women so so this is an example of of an inflammatory profile from genetics and then the other uh, the other thing I want to talk about is the actual detox effects so there's the GST genes or the glutathione genes. There's there's several of them, and uh, I wanted to see if there's a connection between liver detox and uh, and Lyme disease. And uh, what what uh, what we have here is a paper called "The Role of Glutathione Metabolism in Host Defense Against Borrelia Burgdorferi Infection." So. Uh, quoting from the paper, we identify glutathione metabolism as the most important target of Borrelia burgdorferi infection and discovered that this pathway is essential for cytokine production. Okay, not much of a surprise for people like you and me to read that, but the connection of genetics and Lyme is that if someone has problems genetically, creating glutathione, say from the transsulfuration pathway from dealing with homocysteine, you need you need uh, the GST genes in order to make glutathione from homocysteine. And if your body is slow on that conversion, whether then you're going to have problems with because uh, because uh, Lyme disease will just help burn. You, you'll know you know the pathways better than I do how it does it, but Lyme will burn through glutathione very quickly. If you can't keep up because your methylation cycle that feeds into creating glutathione and the liver detox genes that can make glutathione on the on the other on the end point of that methylation cycle um then you're going to have way more problems handling Lyme because you cannot keep up the glutathione production uh so that's that's my that's how I've been able to connect uh glutathione and liver detox and methylation to um uh, to Lyme. And then this is an example of all the genes involved. Not There's there's a couple more, but this is, you're looking, there's 12 major ones for methylation and then three more for liver detox shown here in the corner. I'm not going to list them all off because it's just, it will sound like hexadecimal jargon and, and hieroglyphics all mixed together. Uh, and it could be quite punishing to read through all of them. But just, just a couple points. There is more to methylation than MTHFR. And I don't know how many of your listeners listen to Gary Brecker on uh, Brecker on Joe Rogan talk about, all you need is these five genes on methylation and you're all good. I actually filmed an 80-minute rebuttal to that theory that all you need is to check these five genes and these five genes only. I, I know where he's coming from because how many genes can you talk about in a two-hour interview with you know Mr. Rogan? Um, but it's way oversimplified, and uh, I I currently check for uh, 100 to 110 genes, not just five. Um, and I think he oversimplified it. So I just kind of like want to drop that in there because methylation kind of rocketed into the zeitgeist a couple months ago when Gary was on Joe's podcast. I just want to kind of state that here. Um, the other uh, and here's and here's the eight major genes for liver detox that. Uh, there's, a, there's phase one and there's phase two liver detox. So just to give an analogy for people to understand the liver detox, think of, I learned this analogy from um, Dr. Kalish, who was my mentor for four years. And uh, the liver, think of liver detox as a washer dryer system. So you have dirty laundry, you put it in the washer, 
and then you put it in the dryer and then it's clean. If you put dirty laundry in the washer and then you never let it dry, it'll become moldy and gross and worse than if you'd never washed it in the first place. And so that's that's what can happen if someone doesn't have the dryer set up. That's phase two. So if someone has problems in phase two genetically or metabolically, like they're missing the amino acids to to which, which are required for the dryer phase of, of liver detox, if you have an overactive phase one, which means you cram so much laundry through the washing cycle, but you don't have enough dryers or they're broken or they're overwhelmed or otherwise preoccupied or they're genetically, they're just weaker than what they should. They can't handle all the wet laundry. So then eventually the wet laundry, a portion of it is just going to get moldy and gross. And that's going to cause lots and lots of damage in the whole body. So like benzene is a problem, but you put benzene through phase one, you create a benzene oxide radical. It is a hundred times worse than just benzene alone. Uh, unless you stick it through the dryer and tack on a big, you know, amino acid onto that oxide radical to make it heavy and clunky. So then you can poop it out or, or urinate it out, depending on where it heads. So um, that's that's when I help people understand that your your liver is a washer dryer system. And genetically, you can either have hyper fast washers, which is the yellow red dots where you're pushing the laundry too too quickly or you can have slower dryers, which are what yellow and red dots in these phase two genes. And that that's the connection genetically to liver detox. You know, I, I think you would probably agree that, you know, I think anybody with chronic illness, anybody, Lyme disease or otherwise, right. part of what leads to chronic illness is often poor detoxification pathways. Now, whether that's the genetics, whether it's a function of body burden, I think it's often a combination of both. Yeah, yeah. But it's it's also helpful to understand because, again, if you are genetically disposed to being a slow detoxifier, phase one or phase two, you know, you also have to be very careful about what you're doing to detoxify because there's a very real risk. If you start throwing too much in the system, even all these very well-intended supplements, you know, if your body can't clear it because it's already struggling to clear the toxins and the hormones and everything else in your world, you know, it's just an extra group of stuff that your liver's trying to compensate for to get rid of. And I've seen this in my own practice. I'm sure you've seen it as well, where, you know, these very well-intended things just backfire spectacularly and people yeah. take these things and they just feel absolutely horrible. So yeah, harxing out is, is the, is the term that most people throw around that they, they, they try to do things to detox and it totally backfires. And, uh, one of my instructors, um, Dr. Wally Schmidt, who was the heir apparent to Dr. Goodhart, uh, he he talked about, you know, if people are are having terrible reactions to detoxing and all the rest of it, the the default, aside from obviously removing any external body burdens from being currently more reintroduced, is focus on phase two to try to get and in my interpret that is get the dryers working before you start shoving more wet laundry. Through it, and if you if you put all these supposed you know well-meaning nutrients in, one of the consequences is if if you're not careful, you're just going to spin up the washers, but not actually uh, proportionally spin up the dryers, and you get the the problems you just described. And uh, I've hurt myself personally detoxing too quickly. I, I have I, I've I've hurt myself badly um, because I I went through that mistake when I was much more young, younger and more foolish over 20 years ago doing all sorts of detoxes because that was a thing to do, I guess. And then I started, my joints began to pop and crack as, as someone who was 21. And it, it just, it was, it was freaked me out. And I realized that I was, I should stop this detox because I didn't learn later actually until I sat in biochemistry with uh, Dr. Campbell in chiropractic school. And he said that the liver will rot liver Phase two requires a lot of sulfur-based amino acids. And if you're out of sulfur-based amino acids, the, the liver will then scavenge sulfur-based amino acids from the joints. So the S in MSM that people take for joints, the S stands for sulfur. And as when I sat in his class and he said, I was like, oh, that's why my joints hurt and popped and cracked when I was in the middle of this heavy detoxing because I ran out of sulfur and which which joints have the least amount of sulfur to spare? The giant joints of the hips and shoulders or the really, really tiny joints of the fingers and toes? It was the fingers and toes. 
So I was, that's why most my fingers were cracking, not my hips. And so there's this personal example of when detox has gone wrong. Uh, I remember that. In fact, I, I think I remember the last time I spoke, spoke about it. As soon as you started talking about it, I was like, oh, yeah, that happened to me badly. Um, yeah. I think people so, forget that sulfur is the fourth most abundant mineral in the body. And we always talk about calcium and magnesium and zinc and copper and these things. And we completely ignore sulfur. One of my uh, classmates, Dr. Kathleen Janelle up in the Seattle area, has been using a lot of sulfur for SIBO and gastrointestinal problems. And it's amazing when you just replace that sulfur that a lot of these GI symptoms get better. So sulfur is just one of those nutrients that uh, we need to remember is really important for healthy function. Yeah, I think I think the mnemonic was schnapps. Well, for it was for from the seven most abundant. I think I think schnapps was uh, it was like sulfur, carbon, hydrogen, nitrogen, uh, oxygen, phosphorus. Uh, I don't remember what the other S is, um, but but that was the mnemonic. I remember most of the mnemonic, so it counts for something. <laughs> uh, so so the last the last genes I want to talk about are vitamin D receptors. And th this one is uniquely interesting in the Lyme community because it's addressing, I came across the Marshall theory and the, the Marshall theory for Lyme proposed that, and please correct me if I'm wrong, the Marshall theory proposed that you shouldn't give large doses of vitamin D for someone in Lyme because it can backfire. Now, as we were talking earlier, clinically said you haven't seen that work. Uh, they haven't seen that pan out in your practice. It didn't make sense to me when I heard it. But, you know, as practitioners, my job is to, when I look at a theory or a hypothesis and say, how could it be true? Not how it's never true, how it's always true. How could it? And I was just like, how does that make any sense that someone, um, give, giving him the benefit, giving, you know, Dr. Marshall the benefit of the doubt that he saw really high vitamin D and it backfired. How could it have happened? So one, it may have been the wrong vitamin D. It may have been ergocalciferol, vitamin D2, not D3. That may have been one issue, but I don't, I don't know. Number two was that it may not have been vitamin D was the problem. It's that the vitamin D receptors were the problem. So the vitamin, just to, so to help our, our listeners and our viewers understand, I'm going to try to blow up this, these words a little bit um, for the viewers. So vitamin D is in my opinion, next to like water, the most important molecule in the body. And it can genetically, vitamin D controls estimated between three and 5% of the entire genome. Just think about that. One molecule controls one, 1 33rd to 120th of all your genes. Just crazy the amount it influences. Most of them have to do with dealing with inflammation and immunity. Yeah, bone density is there, but it's not the primary function of vitamin D. So but getting vitamin D into the blood is half the journey from sunlight. And there's like about a half dozen genes between your sunlight and in your bloodstream. So it's not, it's not a direct shot. There's, there's, there's several steps there. So you get vitamin D into your bloodstream not into the cells, into the bloodstreams through sunlight, supplements, and food. Getting it from bloodstream into cell is the other half of the journey. So vitamin D needs to dock on something called the vitamin D receptor. It's, it's a docking site that fits vitamin D floating around, vitamin D lands on it, and then it goes in and all the transcription magic in the genome happens. So to me, the issue is that for, for people that have you know variations in their vitamin D receptors, there's fewer of them there's fewer spots for vitamin D to land on the surface of the cell to utilize the benefits of vitamin D. Now, I'm going to share you something that, that was at first anecdotal, but then later played out in the data. So I noticed in my practice that 100% of my chronically ill clients, minus one example, who had double green dots, 100% of my chronically ill clients had double reds or double yellows or a red yellow except for one person at a double green, and that person at double green had a massive, massive load of stress. Like we're talking like child near death, like, like the, the worst stress a parent could ever go through. Okay, so, and when chronic stress, as you know, can drive any, over, override anyone's genetics and drive them into chronic illness. So 
I then later told this to the scientists who put these panels together. And then I asked them, please cross check with your other uh, practitioners who run a higher volume, and then also check your entire database of all the tests you've ever run and check for the correlation of chronic disease and especially double reds uh, when the VDR1 and VDR2 and double yellows. He came back to me months later and he said, you're 100% correct. This is exactly what the other practitioners who, who see a lot of these tests and also when we check the database. So that matches then what happens, what, you see how vitamin D is so important. If you have less ability to use it, then the inability the inability to use vitamin D will lead to all these worse outcomes. So bringing this back to Lyme. So there's a bunch of articles listed here, not necessarily specific to Lyme. It was very, very hard to find a direct research paper connecting VDR variations to Lyme. I, I still don't believe that uh, I or Dr. Fortuna have, have, do not have found that paper. We have found lots of research on the connection of vitamin D to autoimmunity and viral infections. You know, and lots and lots of papers on those. So here's here's the hypothesis that there are certain infections that will downregulate the vitamin D receptor, so there's less docking sites for vitamin D, or gum them up, actually like block the receptor, so you can't use it. So one or one or two, one of their both of those pathways. That to me explains why there, there might be something to Marshall's theory, not that vitamin D is the problem, it's that there's the vitamin D receptors get so blocked up or withdrawn that vitamin D is nowhere to go in the bloodstream. So the, the point being is that if someone knows they have a vitamin D receptor, variant. There's a there's things that they can do nutrigenomically, epigenetically to help increase the expression of the vitamin D receptors in order to help use vitamin D more efficiently to benefit from the uh, immune benefits and the anti-inflammatory benefits of vitamin D. Does that make sense? Yeah, you, you know, it's interesting, you know, for, for just a little background. So Dr. Trevor Marshall, who's a PhD, he's a researcher, was actually, I believe, studying sarcoidosis, yeah. uh, looking at this whole relationship with vitamin D and then kind of applied it to other chronic illnesses, including Lyme. Sort of counter to that, uh, Dr. Coimbra out of Brazil, I'm not sure how long ago, uh, has the opposite. Now, again, he was looking more at multiple sclerosis, but found that giving extremely high doses of vitamin D tend to downregulate neural inflammation. Uh, so we've got these sort of two extreme opposite opinions on, you know, vitamin D using basically none versus using something upwards of like 100,000 IUs of vitamin D every day, which has to be monitored very, very closely. And anecdotally, you know, there's been many people with MS and other Lyme disease and other chronic illnesses that have reported benefit with the high doses of vitamin D. And again, it may be if they've got a problem with their vitamin D receptor, this you may have to give more to override that yeah. resistance of whatever it is. So again, we're not telling you it's right or wrong. We're just kind of pointing out that this receptor is, is important. And uh, if you're checking your vitamin D levels, in particular, if you've been supplementing with vitamin D and you see your levels don't go up very much, uh, if you haven't checked your genetic profile, I think it's very possible this is part of the reason is that there's some element of resistance. Yeah. So I think that I, I would love to see more papers, uh, even one, honestly, on VDR and Lyme. I, I, I could not find it. Dr. Fortuna couldn't find it. Uh, and we, there's plenty on chronic infections and autoimmunity, but not specifically to VDR and Lyme. And if anyone here is that nerdy and that committed, uh, here's here's your PhD project. Uh, <laughs> and it's you on a on a lime covered platter. <laughs> so, so that's, that's what I wanted to share today. Uh, Dr. Ingalls is on the connection of, of how gene variations of key genes could very plausibly, some, some are shown directly affect someone's experience of Lyme. 
whether it's these the superoxide radicals affecting in your your ability your janitors in your mitochondria mn sod as the head janitor to mop up all the sparks whether it's your ability to create glutathione whether it's how how robust your methylation cycle is that can help deal with homocysteine and and then have the egress out into potential glutathione production your vitamin d receptors and your ability to actually utilize vitamin d um and then the inflammatory genes uh particularly interleukin 6 and, and tnf alpha and the research but i also We'll throw out there that there's way more to the inflammatory genes that relate to this, like interleukin tens, than than we have uh, than that's out there. So my what I would say to people who are listening and watching that that genetics may be an additional tool of the many tools that are out there to help better have better agency over what you have got going on with Lyme or any other thing you're dealing with. And uh, it, and that that's the key where it's about personal agency. That the genetics genetics is not the be all end all. It is foundational, but it is massively important as as the foundation to understanding how to target where you need to look and how to also increase the benefits of whatever other type of interventions or processes or therapies or diets or whatever else it is you're doing. Uh, like, for example, if you got histamine issues and it turns out you're dealing with histamine, 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 and then it's like, oh, I'm actually genetically more vulnerable to histamine just overall, then there's a whole other set of things to do based on your histamine sense, histamine genes that can help you m mitigate the problems you have of the hyperhistamine activating world. So that's what I wanted to share today uh, with people on uh, on how to better understand uh, how genetics may influence their Lyme or other chronic issues. Well, uh, Dr. Shea, I, I really appreciate it. I mean, I think this is the best explanation of genetics I've I've ever heard, particularly as it relates to Lyme. Again, I've I've talked with Ben Lynch and Karen Ladowski and other people who really get into the weeds of this, but I think it's so hard to translate all this down to something that's really usable and actionable. So I, I really appreciate it explaining the way that you have. And again, you know, this is not my wheelhouse at all. It's like I have a very rudimentary understanding understanding of a lot of these genetics. So for anyone who's tuning in who really wants to do a deep dive, uh, I know Dr. Sam is available to do online consultations with you. He can help you understand the testing, what you actually do about it. Uh, I believe it's drsamshay.com backslash genetics, but we'll drop the link into the show notes as well. So that if people want to work with you one-on-one, -on -one, uh, they'll have that opportunity to do it. Thank you. Yeah, for people that are, are curious about genetics, like there, there's, I have some eBooks on it. I have a, I have a, several options like whether it's a DIY program or an office hours model. They want coaching or, or whatever it might be. Genetics is a very big topic, and I want to make this as practical as possible for people. Not, not just oh look another test. It's all shiny. Like actually be helped by it. And I, I really, really appreciate the work you're doing, Dr. Ingalls, with, with Lyme. Your work has absolutely influenced my my trajectories. Like your name has come up over and over and over and over again in the circles uh, around Lyme. And my I really appreciate the work you're doing with podcasting and education because this this is how this is how people uh, get the information they need and it's not locked up in some obscure textbook anymore. So uh, thank you for what you're doing and I look forward to future conversations. Great. Thanks, Sam.